What's the recipe for a thriving world? Much like our animal counterparts, the environments we build and the food we eat shape our past and define our future. Today, amidst climate change, food shortages, and a growing outcry for sustainable development, is this a chance to reimagine the very ecosystems that make us who we are? Will our human landscape struggle to keep up? Or can we learn from natural systems that embrace change to stand the test of time? Welcome to She Wonders, produced by BCG Brighthouse, where wonder can change the minds of the people who can change the world. I'm Ashley Grice, CEO at BCG Brighthouse and your host. In this season, I'm wondering how we can rebuild the ecosystems that define our world today and reconstruct the way we create a better tomorrow. For this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Montserrat Bonvehi Rosich, a landscape architect, urban designer, and lecturer at Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Renowned for her investigative work in living systems, climate and soils and urban environments, Montserrat wonders how intentional design and architecture can shape a more sustainable relationship between natural and human ecosystems. Thank you for joining us, Montserrat. Thank you for your invitation. And you can call me Tad since everyone knows me by Tad. That is so kind. I will call you Tad. So Tad, your project, The Landscape We Eat, investigates the cultural and ecological impact of food systems, which we're really excited to discuss. But first, can you tell us about your favorite dish or your comfort food, maybe even the story behind it, and the systems of production that make it your favorite dish? This is a difficult but yet easy question. I would say the Catalan staple food, pam tomacat, or tomato bread, basically bread with tomato, salt, and olive oil. So you basically have two main seasons for this dish. First, the prime summer tomato season, where you have those incredibly red, juicy tomatoes. Then you can ask, what will happen in the winter? So the Catalan agriculture has an incredible tomato variety that you grow in the summer, and the farmers hang it in strings at the time of harvest. That variety can keep all the tomato supplies until the rest of the year and the next summer juicy tomato season. So this is a really smart variety of tomato. You can rub it almost until it reaches the peel. But what I really like is that response to the climate restrictions of the north of Spain. So in Catalonia, contrary to Andalusia in the south, we cannot grow tomatoes all year round. This simple Catalan staple is able to mutate its recipes not only by season, but also has varieties through the Catalan regions and geography and create not just a sense of belonging linked to the dish, but a way of talking about specificities of the landscape of those regions. Okay, for those of you who are listening, first off, it's right before lunch. And so now I'm really hungry because as we did this intro, I figured out that I um, my breakfast had roots going all the way back to Costco in terms of the breakfast bar, which is not exactly the same as what God just described. So, A, I'm feeling really inferior. One of the things that you described that I love is you talked about the food as being smart. You said it was a smart tomato. You also, the way you describe it, it's a really simple dish. In a lot of ways, complexity and flavor often comes from that type of simplicity. How do you think about food being smart? Like to you, when you think about a tomato being smart in in light of the landscape, for example. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means to you? To me, what it's smart is that understands, so this variety understands the place in both, in 
being able to be producing a place that we want tomatoes all year round, but we cannot have them. But at the same time, you can squeeze that tomato and certainly till the peel. That interplay, that two-way engagement, I think is what makes it so intriguing and, and such a good way to use that as nourishment in two different channels. A lot of your work is interested in geomorphology, the process through which land naturally forms and evolves. In your perspective, what can we learn from how land is created and how it changes? How can it teach us to create maybe something more sustainable or harmonious or something more generative when it comes to ecosystems? So understanding the land or the earth without climate or hydrology is almost reading a text without bubbles. We lose all meaning. So when we look at a certain piece of land, we need to contextualize it with climate to understand, for instance, if the wind will be a factor of change or if the water will create some kind of flood on it. So all places are so unique in the combination of geology, climate and hydrology that it becomes clear that we need to do a careful reading before we understand modifying anything on that place. Mm -hmm. So I like to ask students to be generous, and I think generosity is something highly needed in design disciplines. Empathy is obviously another one. So my mentor or colleague, uh, Teresa Galli, always says to the students, be the mountain, be the river. It is to say that if we are about to change a riverfront, for instance, you first have to deeply understand the river close reading it, and then by being the river, you will be able to design with it. So you will be generous with the river and its needs, and your project should become one with the river. And when it does, what is the power that you create when built and natural come together by, by being the one, by thinking very thoughtfully about engaging in the mountain or engaging in the river, as you described? I think you put yourself not in the center, you put the element in the center. And that element has a totally different way of operating, a totally different dynamics, processes that affect them. So more and more often, you know, design is so anthropogenic that we no longer understand the processes that deeply affect that thing that we are about to change and only think about the things that will affect us or we don't really think about the wishes that we want for that place to be. Do man-made ecosystems have any advantages over ones that naturally occur? I guess in other words, what can nature learn from us, if anything? Okay, so I would start by saying that I prefer to use living systems over nature. Okay. Be because just the word itself implies that the understanding that living systems are alive, so they have agency. So both build living systems or wild ones are the ones that constantly are evolving and changing. It might take them a long time to do so, but signs of adaptations are happening every season. So more than thinking that nature learns from us, I would say that living systems tend to evolve with us or along the decisions that we take in transforming environments. So it is to say that life survives despite the difficulties mm -hmm. and adapts more and faster. 
This is such an interesting link to the research project I know you have going on, which is called Thinking Through Soil, in which your team looks at the socio-political consequences of our built environments through the lens of soil. So knowing what you know, why is soil particularly insightful as a medium through which you look at the world and this evolution over time? So soil is also incredible, you know, as a topic, but also I like to consider it also in this realm of the living systems. So none of the life on the surface can survive without the life on the soil. So microorganisms on the soil make life above ground possible. But besides the soil that is alive, and we should be in a more symbiotic relationship with the life that we are depending on, Soil is a result of different processes. The one that I was previously mentioned as the result of climate, hydrology, and geology of a site, but also human processes that have been able to metabolize it and keep changing it. So from farming to paving roads or constructing buildings or parks, those processes change drastically the soil. So in thinking through soil, we try to understand soils beyond their current materiality. And we do so by understanding which anthropogenic processes have transformed them. When you bring up this concept of expansive materiality, it makes me think about sustainable ecosystems. Can you articulate from your opinion what soil teaches us maybe about sustainability, whether it's for society or whether it's about business? So I will start saying that we have lost the ability to look at soil. And this to me is the fundamental question. So many cultures in the past were understanding that soil was everything for them. So curating the soil was the only way for them to survive in certain environments. So for instance, in the Codex Badiana or the Badianos manuscript, that is an Aztec herbal manuscript describing the medicinal properties of various plants used by the Aztecs in Mexico. The plants are described drawn, but not isolated. For instance, how we now see them in modern environments in which you see the plant without the environment that belongs. My colleague in this research said Denis Zen and his research on the manuscript really find out that how plants are represented for instance, with soil, geology, and other life related to them, such as insects, makes the Aztecs have this deeply understanding of there is no plant if there is no the right soil. And I would say there is no plant if we go back to the topics that I've been talking about, no hydrology, no climate, no water, for instance. So to go back to what the soil can teach us is to say, if we carefully look at the soil and understand the processes that are formed it and the processes that we're continuously transforming it, we will be able to take some smarter decisions about the ecosystems that we want to exist on top of them. So as we said before, we need to be the soil when we design with soil. As you say this, it occurs to me that as humans, we must have a tendency just to look out and in front of us. I know at Bright House, we are always encouraging people to look up, look for that North Star, be very thoughtful about wayfinding and where you are headed. And you are saying in some ways, look down and remember the roots from where you are coming from and how that has an impact in so many different ecosystems in which you live. Is there a space in history 
that you feel as though people stopped looking down, that they stopped looking at the soil, some event, some evolution, some piece where all of a sudden they started looking out? The revolution on farming at the beginning of the 20th century and this need to feed everyone, because this is also something that I feel we need to all be really conscious. Feeding the world, it's a really difficult task. And sometimes we see this as our privileged positions in which we can wake up on Saturdays, walk to the farmer's market and get this incredible local produce. But this isn't available for a lot of people. So I feel like the farming revolution was a way to feed the wall, but went so far from detaching the farming practices to the soil that they were working, that suddenly there is no longer a way to understand soil and farming, like industrial farming, in the same sentence, or in a way that we can really deeply understand the soil that we are farming. In the Landscape We Eat project, you also said, a recipe is more than the food. It is made of the geography of our dinner spills off the plate. I love that. I feel like in maybe the last decade, we've started to link food and locality in a way that we had lost previously. The idea of farm to table and what that means and that kind of growth. How can we be more thoughtful of and preempt the unintended consequences of our actions or even the disassociation of geography and food? How do we avoid that? So this project starts with a pretty ingenuous take on when you see something in your plate, you should see the landscape, the type of production, who produce it, and the ways in which even the chef has transforming it. So in other words, when you were seeing at one of the key tasting dishes in the Mugaritz restaurant, you should not see the mackerel, but you should see Aitor, that it's this fisherman that has this old boat that serves the fish to Mugaritz right off the boat, less than 10 miles away from the restaurant. That was not just to me about local foods, but more which are the local foods that we should be producing. So that are related to the landscapes, climates, and practices of production that surround us and are part of our culture. Do you have a point of view on the future of food production? What implications our choices might have? I think the future of food production due to climate change is kind of in a turning point. So maybe it's more accurate to say a bifurcation. So now people need to decide if they want to eat, for instance, a plant-based meat in the form of a sausage or a burger, or if they want to eat, for instance, a pan-fried chapulin that eats the Mexican grasshopper. So let's think about the implications to both of those paths. In the first one, I see people understanding that things need to change, but they're still trying to do the same things and living the same type of life. In the second one is understanding, well, in the planet we are living, where in less than 50 years, more than half of the planet will have so much scarce of water that the food systems that we know need to disappear. The second path, I think, implies a systemic change. So a real change in the culture and how we inhabit the world and how much 
we believe on that change. So this systemic change needs to be translated also, for instance, in the way that we inhabit our cities, for instance, in the way that we use energy, consume textiles. So for instance, an electric car is an amazing improvement in our mobility, but it's really a real systemic change. I would say no. Rethinking the densities of our city and making that we would make a carless city, it's what it's really changing the system. What role do you believe that design plays in this landscape? You've just started to touch on it, but I would love to see, you know, you've talked about design as an attitude. What does that mean to you when it comes to looking at our plates? Like how I was mentioning before the Nyanyo, what we can learn from them is a careful way of looking at the world. So careful that it's understanding the seasonality, the change in every single part of that landscape. So the attitude to me is to be able to sit and look and hear. It's kind of a slowness in a way, in the way that we take decisions, because we first need to be fully aware of the small changes and what we are looking at. And to understand something, we always know that we need to carefully pay attention to it. I think, for instance, a good example in the way that, for instance, the Nyanyu harvest and they find a sustainable way of taking resources from the environment, but just enough for them to survive, but also enough for the self-regeneration of that ecosystem and landscape that they are living. A good example could be, for instance, in the way that they harvest the figs in the Nopal cactus. So they never take all of them. They leave the low ones for the rabbits that they will eat them. Why? Because the rabbits play two roles in this. First, they are pollinators and they will spread with their poop more seeds to have more cactus, that cactus are, you know, will produce more figs. But on the other, they also are one of the greatest source of calories and protein for the nyanyus. So they know that by feeding the rabbits, the rabbits will procreate and be more rabbits and they have more available rabbits or a larger, greater, healthier community to hang some of them to eat them. Well, and the good thing is they are rabbits. They have really, they're really good reputation for being pollinators amongst other things. Um, I think that it's a funny, it, it is a funny and a beautiful example of design as you think about it in everyday practice. I love that because the way you talk about it is so natural, but it does lead to sustainable ecosystems in that way. So I always tell my students like that we can learn so much from certain vernacular communities and cultures. And I would say that I always try to go to extremes. I think when you try to understand people living in the extremes, you distillate way more. The scarcity in every moment makes you understand and pay way more attention. Not everything is always available, for instance. So it means that you have to be really, really aware of the resources that you have. And once you take one resource, 
that resource it's taking apart and used in every single form of it. The way you describe it is a situation doesn't feel real until you can see it, until you can envision it. It's not real until there's a good example of it. And that's how people start to think about the concept of design, the concept of choices. Oftentimes, to make it real for somebody, they have to see something that represents a situation that they recognize. You teach about the importance of representation in the context of landscape architecture. Can you explain a little bit more why representation is so critical in how we construct and how we depict our environments? So here I would say kind of two different things. One thing is representation for us. So drawing is our way of saying things. And you can see this as more internal to the discipline. So which means that the more different ways that we find to illustrate and represent the materials and processes that require our understanding to make a design, this is kind of one thing. But then on the other, I always tell my students, for instance, we have to be drawing activists, which means that when we draw things, we are able to go out to the world and explain that. One of the many things that I have loved about this conversation is how optimistic you are about the work you're doing. So many people could look at soil and how we have neglected it and the state of our food production systems globally, and there could be doom and gloom. And that is not how you present yourself. It's more about curiosity and excitement. There's a lot of just infectious optimism. How do you stay optimistic in the face of climate adversity? So first off, I think without optimism, we cannot be designers, you know? So one thing that I always also talk with my students, no, that it's that most of them, they come to design because they are activists, because they look at the wall, they see everything that it's wrong and they want to actively change it. But sometimes activism, it's not such good for designers because carry maybe anger, disappointment, and kind of highlighting only the things that are wrong. As designers, I think we have to be dreamers. We always need to imagine the possibility of different futures. And we need to keep that moving and thinking and going. You know, at the end, designers, we are almost always idealists. This is why we keep always optimists. Well, and the, the prescription you're giving is look down, but also look up, right? Those two combinations of those things together, I think is what allows that kind of natural design to evolve with this optimistic thread to it. I mean, just listening to you, it's hard for me to imagine sitting as a student in your class and having anger or despair, right? I'm Right now I wanna be the mountain. I wanna be the river. You've told me it's good to reproduce like rabbits. That's funny to me. Right. All of these things that you're talking about really inspire a lot of positivity as we move forward, which makes me feel good as I step back to think about the state of our ecosystems. I guess my last question for you would be around knowing where things stand with this unbridled optimism in many ways that you have. How can we accelerate change? How do we induce urgency in this space while keeping the right attitude? Yeah, that is an incredible 
question. More and more, I know colleagues that they have reached, you know, with their designs, with even building those designs, they have reached kind of the, the highest moment of transformation. And I would say that the next step, I think for many of us, it's becoming politicians. I know that probably it's not what, you know, what you would think after this conversation, but I feel that we need people that are not politicians that become politicians. We need way more designers, way more doctors, way more biologists, all the disciplines that they step in into the politics, for instance, and they take really informed decisions. From a Bright House perspective, my heart is filled with joy listening to you say that because of the importance that we believe there is on the intersection of strategy and creativity and how the idea of design thinking for the environment or for corporations or for organizations or for people structures is so critical of having those two disciplines come together. And what you're describing is very much that. If we're going to have the best ideas, if we're going to have the best attitudes, if we're going to have the best design, neurodiversity of thinking is so critical. We are thrilled to have been able to to chat with you just on your point of view on what it means to really think about these future systems in a differentiated and a very creative way and to ground us, pun wholly intended, back into the soil at our feet as we continue to look at North Stars because that's what we're always trying to do for our clients, for our company, for ourselves, for the world. So we very much appreciate the conversation and your point of view, Tot. It was amazing to meet and chat with you. Well, it was amazing, you know, that you give me this mic and I could just talk about what I really care about and being able to try to explain a little bit, you know, sometimes the opacity behind, for instance, design, that seems that it's just the result object that we kind of deliver to the society and more thinking about in the way that we should be thinking how we produce those objects or those forms of building. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, thank you so much. I loved it. I learned. I'm hungry. I laugh. (laughs) Thank you again.